There you go. <clears throat> All right. It's always so awesome to get to, to, get to look out and see um, just even see how loud it gets in here. You know, all of you guys loving on each other and talking with each other and enjoying each other's company and all that kind of stuff. Um, just makes my, makes my heart so glad. And it's always such a, such a great way to, to kind of go into um, preaching sermons like this. Uh, I hope all of you are doing well today. Uh, thank you for making this journey out in the, the rain, the snow, like the ice, whatever, whatever it was that you were, uh, um, you were experiencing on the way here this morning. It was kind of crazy. Um, but I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that you made it here. Uh, we're going to have a great time this morning. Uh, whether today is your, your first time here with us uh, at H2O or whether you're here every week, um, we are honestly so glad that every single one of you is here. Uh, so welcome. If you don't know already, my name is Trevor, and I'm one of the staff members here at H2O Church Cincinnati, and I'm going to be bringing the word to you here this morning uh, as we continue to make our way through the book of Genesis. Uh, we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 18 during our time together this morning. And there's a ton of really, really good stuff uh, that I want to share with you uh, out of this chapter this morning. Um, so I want to so get into it kind of quickly, uh, but there are a couple things I want to do before we get started. Uh, first, I want you to know that the focus of our journey through Genesis 18 this morning is going to be on who God is, right? That's going to really just be the, um, be the focus, and, and honestly, any time that you're in the Bible and this is your focus, that's a good thing, <laughs> right? Just like learning and growing in your knowledge of who God is. Uh, so that's going to be our focus this morning. And second, before we get started, uh, I just want us to go to the Lord himself in prayer, okay? It's really acknowledging his presence here with us uh, in this place, welcoming him here, and just asking him to bless our time in his word together this morning, okay? Uh, so please bow your heads in prayer with me. Father God, we do just acknowledge your presence here with us, God. God, we don't want to talk about you like you're not in the room. God, that you are here in this place with us. God, that you are Emmanuel, God with us. God, we, we thank you that, God, you love us. God, that you are rich in mercy, abounding in love and grace. God, you're such a personal God. You know all of us by name. You know the number of hairs on our head. God, you know us better than we know ourselves. And that is amazing. God, we, we welcome you here. And God, we, we pray, God, that you would just bless our time. God, that, that, God, you would do what only you can do. God, that we, we would grow in our knowledge of you. God, we would grow in our love of you. And God, you would just pour out your Holy Spirit um, onto us, into us, over us. Uh, and this would just be such an amazing time. And God, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, so as I mentioned before, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 18 this morning. And we're going to split it into two sections or, or two halves and kind of approach it that way. The first section that we're going to be looking at this morning is the first 15 verses of the chapter. Okay, so Genesis 18, 1 through 15. You can follow along in your Bibles or on the screens behind me here. Uh, I'll, I'll be reading from the NIV. So God's word says, The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, If I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so that you can be refreshed and then go on your way, now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three sias of the finest flour and knead it and bake some bread. 
Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to his servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before him. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where is your wife Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance, entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my husband is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, Yes, you did laugh. So, whoa, <laughs> right? It's kind of epic, especially that kind of like that last part there. It's like, yeah, you did laugh, right? It's like, whew, all right. Um, so there's a lot of like really good stuff uh, in here. Um, so just getting right into breaking this passage down. Uh, something that important that I want to highlight to you right out of the gates is that it is the Lord God himself who is appearing to Abraham and talking with Abraham here in Genesis 18, Okay. Uh, we talked about this before, we call it a, a, a theophany or, or Christophany. Um, so here we see it is the Lord God himself who's appearing to Abraham and talking with Abraham here in Genesis. Um, he's one of the visitors, and actually the first verse of Genesis chapter 19 tells us that the other two visitors are angels who came with the Lord. Uh, so that kind of gives us some, some insight there. Uh, one of the main reasons we actually know that it, it is the Lord God himself um, who's appearing to Abraham here um, is in verse 1. It says, the Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre. And as I mentioned in previous sermons, and as uh, others have also mentioned, anytime we see the title of the Lord in all caps, right? Because it's easy to miss, but it's important that we see it in the Old Testament. When you see the title Lord, and it's in all caps. Sometimes it won't be, and sometimes it will be. Um, In the Old Testament, when we see this, it's talking about God himself. Because the original ancient Hebrew word behind that is Yahweh. Okay? And, and that title, that name of Yahweh, is reserved for one person, who is the one true God. Because Yahweh is the personal, the relational, the specific name of the one true God. Or, or what we might think of as like the proper name of the one true God. Okay? So the fact that we see this here in verse 1, like we can immediately say, okay, this is the Lord himself who's here. And this is awesome. Um, it's important for us to identify that uh, as we go through Genesis 18 so we can actually pay attention to and, and learn things about God from this interaction. All right. so getting into like, what this passage really reveals to us about who God is. Um, the first thing is this. God is worthy. God is worthy. There are so many things that our God is worthy of. And we actually see several things that God is worthy of right here in Genesis 18. And I want to point it out to you. In verse 2, we see that God is worthy of our time and our attention. God is worthy of our time and our attention. Verse 2 tells us that Abraham looked up from where he was sitting at the entrance of his tent, and he saw that the Lord was standing there before him, available for him, open to him. Uh, And when Abraham saw this, he immediately got up. Like, Like there was like no delay. Abraham immediately got up and hurried to where the Lord was standing. The Lord immediately had all of Abraham's time and all of Abraham's attention in this moment because the Lord was worthy of it. Whatever Abraham was previously doing, 
Whatever Abraham was previously thinking about, whatever else previously occupied Abraham's time and Abraham's attention didn't come close to comparing to the importance of the Lord and how worthy the Lord was of his time and his attention. And this truth is still the same for us today, that the Lord is so worthy of our time and our attention. And the thing is, in our modern day, there are a ton, like a ton, a soul-crushing amount of things that are all competing for our time and our attention, right? Smartphones, the news, Netflix, sports, working out, school, work, friends, family, right? The, the, the Lord himself, video games, money, all these different things are all competing for our time and our attention. But each of us has a question that we need to ask ourselves and answer when it comes to this. And the question is this, who or what am I going to say is worthy of my time and my attention? Right? Who or what am I going to say is worthy of my time or my attention? Right? And it's important like what your life says here. Because right? we, can, we can come here to Probasco on Sundays and be like, yeah, go Jesus. Right? And we're like, yes, Jesus, worthy of my time, worthy of my attention. But what is, what is really important is what your life says. Right? Because that, that's, that's truly what matters here. So, will it be God? Will you say with your life that God is worthy of your time and your attention? Abraham did. Now will you do the same today in your life? And to be clear on this, I'm not telling you that you just need to read your Bible, pray, and be in church for 24 hours a day. Okay, that is not what I'm saying. Things like school, work, friends, family, and enjoyment of things are good and important. And, and, the, and scriptures even talk about how God wants us to enjoy things in this life, okay? Um, so you should definitely give time and attention to those things. But the problem is that I think that we can so often put the Lord and the interests of the Lord and, the, and personal quality time with the Lord on the back burner during our days and throughout our life because these other things like school or work or friends or, or working out or whatever else end up taking the priority in our life. But we so often have it backwards, as I was preparing for this, um, I thought about uh, in chapter 2 of the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul says, For everyone look out, looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Right? And this verse convicts the snot out of me all of the time. It's like, man, okay. The interest of Jesus and prioritizing Jesus. Okay? So the Lord and the interests of the Lord and, and that personal quality time with the Lord should be our top priority. And these other things like school, work, friends, and whatever else are just to be submitted to that because he's so worthy through our time and our attention. Next, God is worthy of our worship. When Abraham hurries out to meet the Lord, the text says that he bowed down low to the ground before the Lord as a posture and an act of worship, honor, reverence, and humility. In this, you get the picture of what John the Baptist said about Jesus when he said, he must become greater, I must become less. Okay, this is a beautiful display of worship here. And God is so worthy of our worship. Um, and I actually have a quick story that I want to share with you about this. Um, several of the people in my life group have heard me share this story before, but I wanted to share it with, with all of you this morning. Um, Susie and I, um, we live very close to campus. We live uh, right by the Cincinnati Zoo. Um, yeah. And because we live so close to campus, my, uh, my drive to campus every day is very, very short. Like, like super short. It's like half a mile or something. Um, and because it is so short, I don't even bother with like 
like uh, hooking up my phone, open up Spotify, selecting a song, um, because I'll get like halfway through a song or something. Um, so usually I just have like the Christian radio on in the background, um, where I'm not really like um, focusing on it, I'm just kind of just driving, right? Um, and, and that's where, where, the, where this story um, picks up. Uh, a couple years ago, I was, I was driving home from campus, um, and the Christian radio was, was on in the background. And, and in between two of the songs, uh, one of the DJs came on, and he made a comment said, saying something like, uh, worship God to make your day better. And I nearly stopped my car, legitimately. I said, what? Worship God to make my day better? What? I'm going to worship God because God is worthy of my worship. That is why I'm going to worship God. Not just to make my day better. I'm not going to make the worship of God about me. I'm going to make my worship of God about God. And I think that makes sense. Right? And I think that is good. Right? And, and in this Genesis 18 passage, man, we see it that God is so worthy of our worship. This is the truth I want to share with all of you today. We worship God because he is worthy of our worship. Not just so we can get something out of it. Not so we can just be entertained. Okay? And don't get me wrong. Worshiping God is amazing. Right? Worshiping God is so fun. Worshiping God, uh, like, honestly makes me feel great. But that's not why I do it. And my worship of God isn't limited to times where it just makes me feel great. Right? Man, maybe I'm, maybe I'm in the valley of the shadow of death. I'm still going to worship God there because he's still worthy. Okay? God is worthy of our worship. Next, we see that God is worthy of our best. I want you to notice that when Abraham runs back into his tent, he says to Sarah, quick, get three seahs of the finest flour and knead it and bake some bread. And then it says that Abraham ran to his herd and selected a choice, tender calf, to prepare a meal for the Lord. And in these things, I hope that you can just clearly see from these details that Abraham was giving his best to the Lord. Right? But how, often we are, uh, but how we are so often guilty of just giving the Lord the scraps or the leftovers when it comes to our time, our money, our attention, our devotion, our energy, our passion, whatever else. And God is worthy of our best. We don't have time for me to get into any more specifics in depth about what God is worthy of, um, but here's just a quick list of some of these things that God is worthy of. Our love, our affection, our devotion, our obedience, our service, which is actually something we, we also see here in Genesis 18. Uh, our loyalty, our passion, our humility, our awe, our hearts, our souls, our minds, our strength, our lives, and so much more. Our God is worthy of all of these things and more. And he is so worthy of all of this because he's so good. Because he's so great. Because he's so perfectly just. He's so powerful. He's so glorious. He's so kind. He's so loving. He's so merciful. He's so gracious. He's so generous. So faithful. So wise. So beautiful. So everything that he is. Because that he is all of these things all the time without fail, without compromise, and without wavering. Because he's just always done and continues to do so much good for us. Right? This truth that God is worthy, man, I look at this and I'm like, absolutely he's worthy. Absolutely he's worthy. And it's my prayer that you'll go forth from here and honor God like the worthy God that he is, or that you'll continue to do so even more if you already have been. We're moving along now. Um, the next thing about who God is that I want to highlight to you this morning is that God is a man of his word. 
his spoken word and his written word. God is a man of his word, and he really, really wants us to know this truth, that he is a man who is always true and faithful to his word. And God being a man of his word means that God always does what he says he's going to do, and that he never does what he says he's not going to do. That God always is who he says he is, and that everything that God says will happen, happens. Always, 100% of the time. And I want to show you this truth that God is a man of his word, actually using two verses from Genesis 18 and two, two verses from the previous chapter, Genesis 17. So starting with the two verses from Genesis 17, uh, which are verses 15 and 16, the Bible says, God also said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of people will come from her. In these verses from Genesis 17, God comes to Abraham and he changes Abraham's uh, wife, uh, the name of Abraham's wife, from Sarai to Sarah because she was, he was going enable to enable her to give birth to a son and that she would be the mother of nations. So keeping these verses from Genesis 17 in mind, um, I want us to look at the two verses from Genesis 18 now, which are verses 9 and 10. In these verses, the three visitors and Abraham are having a short conversation with each other. And let's see what they say. Where is your wife Sarah? The three visitors asked Abraham. There in the tent, Abraham said. Then one of the three visitors said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. So these, these verses, uh, these four verses, the two from Genesis 17 and the two from Genesis 18, collectively highlight this truth that God is a man of his word in two ways. First, is in Genesis 18.9, the fact that the, the three visitors refer to Abraham's wife by the name Sarah. Right? This is a very easy detail to miss, but this is huge. That they, that they, they refer to her as Sarah, right? Like right up here, you can see it. This is a significant detail, and I'll tell you why. Sarah just had her name changed by the Lord in Genesis 17. Right? And he changed it because God had come and it made this promise that she would bear a son, right? that she would become the mother of nations. Now it was just in Genesis 17, now we're in Genesis 18. And they refer to her as Sarah here in Genesis 18, even before she gives birth to a son, even before she becomes the mother of nations, because the Lord's word is as good as done as soon as he says it, even if it hasn't happened yet. The Lord's word is as good as done, as soon as he says it, even if it hasn't happened yet. Sarah hadn't given birth to a son yet. Sarah hadn't become the mother of nations yet. But these three visitors come and say, already, you are Sarah. Because the, because the Lord's word is as good as done. Because God is always a man of his word. And the second way that we see this fact uh, is that in Genesis 18, God is actually doubling down on the promise that he made to Abraham in Genesis 17, that Abraham and Sarah would give birth to a son in the near future, even in their old age. Uh, returning to those two verses from Genesis 17, God says, As for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah, as we just talked about. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of people will come from her. And then in Genesis 18, which, again, by the way, is not very long after Genesis 17. There is not a lot of time that has passed here. 
God says to Abraham, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. So we very clearly see here that God is coming to Abraham, and he is doubling down on the promise. From all this, what I hear God saying to Abraham kind of in between the lines here is saying, Abraham, I want you to know that I am a man of my word. Abraham, I want you to know that what I said is going to happen will happen. Abraham, I want you to know that I am a man who is always true and faithful to my word by the fact that he's doubling down here. And God also wants us to know today that he is still always a man of his word. Now, God probably hasn't appeared to any of us and promised us that we would miraculously give birth to a son in the same way that he did with Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 18. But God has still given us so many promises and so many declarations in his written word, and he wants us to know that he is a man of his word, and he will be faithful to it all. And I just want to highlight and acknowledge even just what some of these promises and some of these, some of these declarations are that God has given to us in his written word. In Romans 8, 28, God tells us that he will always work all things together for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. This is a promise from the Lord. He will be a man of his word. In Hebrews 13, 5, God promises us that he will never leave us or forsake us. In 2 Timothy 2, 13, God tells us that if we are unfaithful, that he will still be faithful because that is who he is. In Revelation 1.8, God tells us he is the Alpha and the Omega, which means that he is the beginning and the end, and that he is the one who is and who was and who is to come. So we can know that God will have the final say at the end of time, and that he will be victorious over everything. In Isaiah 54.10, God speaks to us, his people, and he says, Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. And in 1 Peter 1, God tells us that there is an indescribably great inheritance waiting in heaven for us on the other side of this life that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And there is so much more. We could easily be here the rest of the day just going over example after example after example after example of things that God has promised to us and declared to us in his word. And God will be a man of his word with all of it. Just as God did with Abraham, sometimes we need to hear God's promises and declarations again and again and again and again and again to keep our faith strong, to keep our hope alive, and to keep our joy thriving. So we need to make sure that we're giving ourselves opportunities to be hearing God's promises and declarations often and on repeat. Listening to worship God here at church, but also just as you walk between classes, as you're doing your homework, as, as you do whatever you do reading our Bibles, being here at church, being in Christian community and studying the Bible in Christian community like we do in our life groups, whatever else. Just being and giving yourself, being in these places and giving yourself these opportunities to hear God's, uh, God's promises on repeat. It's so important and so valuable. And I want you to know, last thing on this point, that you can have total confidence, complete certainty, and full assurance of all of these things. It's not just that you can be hopeful of these things, not that you can just really like, you know, cross your fingers, cross your toes, but that you can have full certainty, total confidence, and complete assurance. Okay, moving on from that now. Actually, let me get a drink of water. Excuse me. 
when we're, when we're looking at this passage, you can probably even very clearly see um, where I'm pulling this from. Um, when we, when we kind of try to identify big themes that are present here in Genesis 18, um, I could easily talk to you about the truths that God can do anything, that God is not limited or confined or restricted or constrained by anything, except by our unbelief and lack of faith sometimes, as John talked about in his sermon last week, that God is able to do things that are totally impossible for us to do on our own apart from God, that it is so important for us to meet the Lord and to respond to the Lord with faith, belief, and trust, and that our God is actively and presently involved in his creation and with his people. But I'm actually not going to spend uh, very much time on any of these points. Uh, I just wanted to touch on them, even just for just a minute here, because these are big, thing, big themes in Genesis 18. Um, but uh, last week, John preached an excellent sermon uh, over Genesis 17, where he hit on several of these things. Um, so I'm not going to uh, kind of come back and hit on those same things again. Uh, if you haven't heard his sermon from last week yet, I really encourage you, sometime this week, um, go check it out on our Spotify, on our website. Um, uh, it's great. Uh, but because I won't be uh, doing any more than just touching on these truths this morning, um, as a reminder for you, um, we get the opportunity to, di- to dive into some additional great points here in Genesis 18 for the remainder of our time. Uh, but before we actually move on to the second half of Genesis 18, there's one more thing that I want to highlight from this first passage. And it's the truth that God sees all things, hears all things, and knows all things. God sees all things, hears all things, and knows all things. Grant got into this a little bit uh, a couple weeks ago when he was preaching over Genesis 16, but I want to bring it up again. Uh, and to see this in our Genesis 18 passage this morning, uh, we need to take a quick look at how, how Sarah initially responds to hearing God's promise and how God confronts Abraham and Sarah about Sarah's response. Um, so we're going to look at verses 9 through 15 all together. It says, Where is your wife Sarah? The three visitors asked Abraham. There in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to his tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my husband is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. So just from reading these verses again, you can probably already start to see this truth, that God sees all things, hears all things, and knows all things. But I still want to point out some details here to you. So in verses 13 and 15, God calls out Sarah for laughing and unbelief. But I want you to notice that in verse 12, it actually says that Sarah laughed to herself while she was still inside the tent, and that she simply thought the statement of unbelief rather than audibly saying it out loud. So these details about Sarah in verse 12 actually show us that this was actually very private and very secret. But God still heard it. God still saw it. And God still knew it because he sees all things, hears all things, and knows all things. Even, uh, Even the things that we think are totally private, secret, or hidden. God sees and hears and knows all of the visible actions that we do and all of the audible words that we say, but that he also sees, hears, and knows all of the thoughts that we think in our minds, all of the desires that we harbor in our hearts, 
all of the internal attitudes or perspectives that we have towards others or certain things, all of the beliefs of our souls, and all of the motives of our hearts as to why we did or didn't do a certain thing. And God sees, hears, and knows all of these things all of the time. And with this also comes accountability from God. Just as we see with Sarah in Genesis 18, when God confronts her about her private unbelief and her lack of faith. And this kind of all-around accountability from God is so good. And it's so good because what God is doing is God is forming us and leading us and helping us to be truly authentic people. These people who, who, aren't, who don't just show one thing on the outside, but on the inside are actually different. But he's refining us into authenticity this way, that it's all laid bare before him so that we would be authentic people. And guys, that is amazing. That, that, is, that is so good. And I know that some people can be actually intimidated by this truth, honestly, that God sees, hears, and knows all things, and, and that he holds us accountable. But I want, you, I want you to know that you don't have to be intimidated by this. You don't have to be fearful of this. You don't have to be fearful of your God in this way. You don't have to be intimidated by this or fearful of this because there is so much mercy, grace, love, and forgiveness from God anytime that you fall short. Even if it's in one of these kind of secret or private ways like your motives or your private thoughts or your attitudes or something like that. The God who sees all of your things, hears all of your things, and knows all of your things is the same God who loves you, is the same God who is rich in mercy, and is the same God who is abounding in love and grace for you. And he's a trustworthy God that never, and I want you to hear this, he's a trustworthy God that never abuses his power. Ever. You don't have to be intimidated by him or terrified by him. And two, you don't have to be intimidated by this because God is just calling you higher, deeper, and further uh, into degrees of life and peace and righteousness, goodness, and love, and holiness. You don't have to be intimidated by conviction. I just see it as God reaching out his hand to us just to pull us deeper. And that's always worth it. And when it comes to this, I would even love for us to be a people who echo what King David prayed to the Lord in Psalm 139. When he says, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That we would be a people who are so devoted to the Lord and who are so devoted to the ways of righteousness, holiness, goodness, and purity that we actually ask God to come and know us inside and out and to refine us and sanctify us and transform us more and more into the image of his Son. With that said, I want us to move on to the second half uh, of Genesis 18 now. We're not going to spend as much time um, on this section as we did in the first, but there are some things I want to hit on, okay? So picking up in verse 16, going to the end of the chapter, God's word says this. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry has reached me. If not, I will know. 
The men turned away and went toward Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will, will you destroy the whole city for lack of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again he spoke to him. What if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. So, big, big back and forth here, for sure. Um, our focus uh, on this passage as well um, as we did the first passage, is going to be who God is. All right? And the first thing I want to highlight to you about who God is, is that God wants to be our friend. You may see this, you're like, what? God wants to be our friend? Cool. But I'll explain where this comes from. God wants to be our friend. In chapter 15 of the Gospel of John, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And he says, greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. And these verses from Jesus are awesome. Um, and we're actually seeing this heart of Jesus from John 15 displayed here in Genesis 18. In light of what Jesus says in those John 15 verses about, about knowing the master's business, having that insight, kind of having an inside scoop, the Lord is treating Abraham like a friend here in Genesis 18. Because again, he gives him this, this personal insight about his purpose, his plans, and his, his business regarding Sodom and Gomorrah and the incredible amount of wickedness that was present in those cities. To give us even more of a confirmation that the Lord viewed Abraham as a friend and treated Abraham like a friend, the book of James in the Bible says, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. Abraham was a friend of God. And if you are here today and you are a true born again Christian, that means that you are a friend of God as well. And not just a distant friend. This friendship with God is a best friend level friendship. Now, I know some of you hear that and you're like, oh, wow, that's, that's cheesy. That's real, that's real cheesy. Nice one, right? But this is actual solid scriptural truth because nobody loves you like God loves you. Nobody is a better friend than God. Like, he is the best friend, right? And God doesn't want to just be friends with you by title, and that's it. He wants to interact with you and commune with you and go through this life with you in true and genuine friendship. To really get a good understanding of this, I actually want you to think about the dynamics and the elements that are present in a best friend level friendship. Because again, that's what we're talking about here. So 
a deep and genuine love for one another, good standing with one another, really knowing your best friend and being really known by your best friend. Like that person, like for all of you probably right now, you're like, yeah, this person knows me better than anyone else on the planet. You know, like that, that, that person. Quality time spent together that is genuinely enjoyed. Depth, closeness, and a strong bond. Regular, open, and ongoing communication with each other. Up-to-date knowledge of what is going on in each other's lives. Being at each other's hip through life, and so much more. And this, like the, these characteristics, this is the kind of friendship that the Lord wants to have with you. All of these things. And I think that some Christians can actually tend to squirm a little bit and get a little bit uncomfortable when we talk about things like this because they have such a hard time receiving and embracing and accepting this truth that God does genuinely love them and that he wants a genuine personal friendship with them. If I can be honest, I get it because that can actually be me sometimes. I can sometimes struggle to fully receive and fully embrace and fully accept this truth that God loves me so much and that he genuinely wants a deep friendship with me. I can sometimes keep myself from enjoying the full benefits of this, even though it's available for me. And I can sometimes trade it in for choosing to be super hard on myself instead. But I have to consistently preach this truth to myself that Jesus wants what he paid for. And Jesus paid a huge price just so that he could have friendship with me. And if you're out there and you can sometimes find yourself in a similar spot where you can sometimes struggle to fully receive and fully embrace and fully accept this truth that God loves you so much and that he genuinely wants a deep friendship with you, I want you to know that Jesus wants what he paid for. Allow this to like give yourself permission. Okay? Jesus wants what he paid for and what he paid for was you. What he paid for was a friendship with you. And he wants it so bad. And there's actually a really big element of faith and belief and trust in this, like John was talking about last week. And in this case, it isn't really a matter of believing whether or not God can do a certain thing, because he actually already did it. In this case, the faith and the belief and the trust is about believing and trusting that God truly meant it when he said that he wants to be best friends with you. Trusting him at his word even if you don't fully understand it. God wants to be our friend. There's a ton of other things that we could get into um, this morning. But there's one more thing that I want to highlight to you about who God is this morning, just to honor the time that we have available. The last thing I want to highlight to you uh, about who God is is this. God has the authority and the power to bring forth life or death. God has the authority and the power to bring forth life or death. And which side of this that you are on, which one of these things that you receive from the Lord, is entirely up to you. In the first half of Genesis 18, God talks with Abraham and Sarah about he is going to bring forth new life for them by enabling them to have a son. While in the second half of Genesis 18, God tells Abraham that the people of Sodom and Gomorrah are at risk of receiving a sentence of death from him in the form of his divine judgment. So we can very clearly see that uh, this truth, that God has the authority and has the power to bring forth life or death. And, and in uh, Genesis 18, um, the examples that were given uh, have to do with like physical life, like, with, with new birth, new birth of a son, or physical death, with like the, judge, the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
And it's true. God does have the authority and the power to bring forth physical life and physical death. But I want to highlight and emphasize that God also has the authority and the power to bring forth spiritual life and spiritual death. Life for the soul and and death for the soul. Just a bit ago, I said that which side of this that you are on, which one of these things that you receive from the Lord is entirely up to you. The the determining factor is what made Abraham and Sarah different from the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. The difference was that Abraham and Sarah were people of the Lord. People whose faith was in the Lord. People who were devoted to the Lord. People who were humbly submitted to the Lord. Whereas the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were people of wickedness. People of sin. And people who refused to submit to the Lord. And when I say that Abraham and Sarah were people of the Lord and people who were devoted to the Lord and people who were humbly submitted to the Lord, this doesn't mean that Abraham and Sarah were perfect or sinless or self-righteous. We know quite well, actually, uh, from what we've seen in Genesis uh, so far, that they were definitely not perfect. They had their failures. They had their shortcomings. They had their mistakes. They had their struggles with faith. But their hearts, hear me, their hearts, were devoted to the Lord. Their hearts were humbly submitted to the Lord and reliant on the Lord for salvation. And that is what is key. And in this, like this, this, inter, this interaction uh, that Abraham and God are having here in this passage, like, I, I want to I talk about something that, that uh, is, is not happening, a, a perspective that I don't want you to have of this. That what we're seeing here in, in the second half of Genesis is a God that's out of control. A God who's like, who's storming earth, about to just absolutely annihilate Sodom and Gomorrah. And then Abraham's like, stop, right? That's not, that is not what's happening here, right? Because I want you to understand that like, God, he is just so righteous and he is so just here, Okay? And I want you to understand, when we're talking about this idea of God bringing life and God bringing death, that his judgment is always right and always good and always just. And what I think is happening here, and we can even like pull things away from this passage about like the power of intercession and how God hears and responds to our prayers. Right? If you see this passage and you learn those things, cool. Like that is super powerful. I see it, that's kind of stuff. But I think there's something even higher here. I think, I think, God is using Abraham to help show something. I think God is using Abraham to actually show how righteous and how good God's judgment actually is. That when when Abraham comes before God and, and, and he says, God, what if there's 50 righteous people there? Will you still destroy it? God says, no, I won't. What about 45? Will you still destroy it? No, I won't. What about 30? Will you destroy it? No, I won't. How about 20, will you? No. How about 10? No. I think, that's, I think that's such a huge element here of what's happening in, in, in this second passage here. That we're seeing that God doesn't want to destroy us. God takes no delight in destroying the soul. Right? Ezekiel 33.11 says that actually. I don't, I don't have it uh, written down here, I guess. But you can go uh, read it for yourself. 
Ezekiel 33:11, the Lord clearly says, he says, I take no delight in the punishment of the wicked, but what I desire is that they would repent and come to me. And I think that's what we're saying. That's what we are seeing here, right? That his judgment is so right and so good. And to kind of summarize that, here's, I'll summarize with this line. God wants you to have life. God wants you to have life, and God wants you to have life so much that he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to earth to save you and to give you life in him through his sacrifice for you on the cross and through his resurrection from the dead. In John 10, 10, Jesus is speaking. He says, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus wants to give you life, fullness of life, in this present life and in the next life to come. In chapter 5 of the book of 1 John, God's word says, and this is the testimony, God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. This lays it out very clearly. Whoever has the Son has life. This means that you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior because you can't save yourself. It means that your heart is humbly submitted to Jesus Christ as your King. Whoever has the Son has life, but whoever does not have the Son does not have life, period. And the reason that God can and does bring forth death to those who are not in Jesus Christ is because he is always perfectly just and always upholds perfect justice. Because he's perfectly just, he cannot leave sin unpunished or unpaid for. So if you are in Jesus, that means Jesus has already taken the punishment for you and already paid the price for you. But if you are not in Christ, the just and the righteous and the pure wrath of God remains on you. The Bible in Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. The payment of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So on this last point, that God has the authority to bring forth life, and the authority to bring forth death. What will it be for you? Life or death? Life is in the Son. Death is apart from the Son. If you're here today, and you are in the Son, you do have life. I want you to be confident in that, excited about that, in this present life and the life to come. But I also want you to go and you, I want you to tell your friends this news. Man. Because the heart of Abraham and the heart of the Lord is one of compassion. Not wanting to destroy wicked people, but desiring that all people would repent and that all people would come to the Lord. Friends, God is worthy. Worship team, you can, you can come back up this time. God is worthy. God is a man of his word. God sees, hears, and knows all things, even the secret things. And he works to bring forth authenticity. God wants to be our friend. God has the authority and the power to bring forth life or death. And he is such a good God. Let's pray.
Father God, we thank you, God, that you have given us such revelation of yourself. God, that you have come. God, that you have pulled back the curtain of heaven. And God, you've shown us who you are. God, you've shown us your heart. God, you've shown us your character. God, you've shown us your goodness. God, you've shown us your power. God, you've shown us your faithfulness. God, you've shown us that, God, you are so worthy. Worthy of our time and our attention. Worthy of our worship. Worthy of our love, our devotion, our obedience. Worthy of our hearts, our souls, our lives. Just worthy of so much, Lord. You're so worthy, Lord. Lord, you unravel us with just even just a sliver of who you are. And Lord, thank you that someday, Lord, we will see you face to face and we will be with you forever. Thank you, Lord, for giving us life in your son. God, thank you that you're a man of your word. God, thank you that you are such a good, good father. God, thank you just for the incredible God that you are. And God, I pray that as we transition into this next time of worship, God, that our hearts here today, God, would worship you, God, because you're worthy. God, our eyes, our minds, our hearts, God, would be focused on you and being with you in this time. In Jesus' name, amen.